The Army's Acquisition Office will launch a new group later this year to bring some standardization to how it works with vendors to manage intellectual property rights. The IP cell, as the Army calls it, will work across all mission areas to help educate and provide hands-on assistance to contracting officers as they write solicitations. For more, Executive Editor Jason Miller spoke to the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army for Strategy and Acquisition Reform, Margaret Boatner. We're looking to source from a number of areas, right? One of the problems is that the Army and broadly DOD don't have a ton of IP resident within uh, the Corps. So we are going to put out some hiring announcements for civilians, but potentially bring on contracted support, you know, leveraging our Guard and Reserve folks, leveraging academia and industry in creative ways. How can we bring folks on to do that? And so it'll be a mix of of sources that we pull from and a mix of functional areas, right? We're going to need some legal expertise, some program management, some contracting, some valuation, so specifically valuing intellectual property. Of course, if they have experience with intellectual property, that's going to be very important as well. So it's, it's a mix of functional areas and then pulling from a mix of sources as well. But it's really going to be Army. You know, OSD, as mandated by Congress, already has an OSD IP cadre. They are just, you know, they're quite small, not able to support all of the programs across the DOD, obviously. And so we want it to build a dedicated Army intellectual property cell to help our Army programs and our industry partners. The current approach to dealing with IP is done kind of more ad hoc. I imagine each contracting organization or officer even says, okay, this is what I think we need. And so this is trying to bring some standardization to this entire process. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. In 2018, the Army put out a policy which is supposed to help give that standardization. But, you know, program offices, contracting offices all have different cultures and different ways of doing it. And even their industry partners approach IP differently. So your vehicle portfolio approaches it one way different than your aviation portfolio. So in addition to the policy and other efforts, this cell is really supposed to help standardize those core principles of kind of balancing the interests between government and industry. How many people do you expect? And you said it's going to get initial operating capability sometime in in 23 with maybe full operational capability in 24. What's the current thinking around oh, we want 10 people, 100 people, and they're going to meet every week, every every month. They're going to be what? Our initial goal is 10 people, which seems small, but it is hard to find IP experts, particularly to bring them into the government. And so 10 is our goal. That's what we're going to shoot for first. And then hopefully we can grow from there. And, and hopefully part of it will be that this intellectual property cell can almost help grow the bench within, you know, the Army, help to educate folks within our contracting and program offices on IP. But yeah, the core team at HQDA will be 10 folks, and and we'll, you know, kind of dispatch them out to certain programs, certain contractings, the riskier ones, the more complex ones, et cetera. That's our initial plan. Of course, we hope to grow it, you know, prove out value and grow it as much as possible. But it's going to be dependent on the hiring process (laughs) and our ability to actually source the expertise. And of course, the big challenge is that everyone's going to want their attention and 10 people can only go so far so there's a prioritization issue is that going to come from uh, hqda or is that going to come from the asalt folks the acquisition and sustainment folks it'll come probably from the asalt folks that's where we're going to have the cell but based on input from our program offices from our industry partners etc etc to help prioritize but you know ip you got to get programs early in the process before it's too far baked so some of that timing will factor in as well is this modeled after the Navy, the OSD, somewhere else in industry? It feels like this is not necessarily, oh my goodness, we just thought of a brand new idea, but it's also, it is obviously new to, to the Army. Yeah, it's new to the Army. So really, this, this started in Congress, right? And a couple of years ago, they legislated to OSD, so the Office of the Secretary of Defense, for acquisition and sustainment to stand up their own cell that would help all of the services. 
they've been able to bring on seven, eight, nine folks. They're doing a great job, but that's, you know, those aren't the numbers to support the entire DOD. And so we are kind of modeling it after that to an extent. Hopefully, you know, we'll be able to offer more hands-on support to our Army programs, you know, and I know the other services are thinking about this as well, right? IP has been such a focus area for Congress and the Department in the last several years, so uh, not totally original, but, but absolutely putting the Army kind of focus on it this time. Margaret, obviously there's uh, finding these type of folks who know IP is difficult. So if I am somebody who's interested, how can I learn more? Where can I find the job announcements when they do come out? I think reaching out through the small business office, Kim Bueller and her team, right, they have a very robust page that they've talked about. You can reach out through there. You can also reach out directly to my office, and I'm happy to provide the, the contact information for, for my team that's building this out. We will have hiring announcements out on USA Jobs, so of course the government-wide <laughs> application hiring system. So our civilian positions will be announced there, and so we will absolutely be pushing that out via ASALT social media and some of our pages, as well as the small business page, so keep an eye out. And then if you want to contact directly, absolutely. And we can obviously link to your site on federalnewsnetwork.com to make it easier as well. Uh, your portfolio obviously is bigger than just uh, intellectual property in the cell. Just other things on your agenda, per se, that maybe you're interested in over the next, uh, you're focusing on, uh, you know, in 23 and beyond? So my portfolio is broadly acquisition policy and acquisition reform. And so from that perspective right now, huge focus on Ukraine. Congress in the FY23 NDAA gave us a lot of good contracting flexibilities to be able to award much more quickly. So my office is trying to implement that as quickly as possible to get those contracts made so that we can get material to Ukraine. Um, and then more from the reform perspective, we're really focused on how can we modernize the way we do software development within the Army. So big push, that's a, that's a big Army, big acquisition problem, everything from requirements to acquisition to sustainment have to change, right, to be able to account for these really agile in, in modern software development approaches. And then second, how where can we streamline, right, which has kind of been the acquisition reform focus forever, but how can we streamline and make the process more efficient, particularly with all of these new flexibilities that we've been given in recent years, how can we make the most of them? And so that's also what my office is focusing on. On the software development, I know DOD has uh, asked for some programs for colorless money. I know you've, uh, DOD's gotten a few, and Congress has not necessarily been as supportive as DOD would have liked. Without getting into the politics side of it, what are you all doing from an Army standpoint to address this idea of, okay, the way we do software development is a little bit at a time versus the Big Bang Theory, which is this idea of, of putting all the money on contract at once. Are there some pilots or, or ways you're looking at this to – use the flexibilities that already exist in the FAR that maybe Congress has not given you quite yet, or maybe they will only give you in a limited fashion? We are leveraging the BA-8 pilot, which is, you know, the kind of single stream of funding, right, to account for rdt &E, procurement, and OMA. We do have one program using that. It's seeing a lot of success, right? It, it's still only a pilot, but really seeing a lot of success in being able to, to move with more flexibility and agility, right? Because to your point, Software is no longer this waterfall approach where you can budget by, hey, we're in test and development now, and now we're procuring something, and now we're sustaining something. So you can shift colors of money. It goes back and forth so fluidly. So having that kind of one color of money is very, very helpful. And so, you know, we in the department are continuing to be strong proponents for that and seeing a lot of great um, success there. The one project you mentioned, are you able to offer just a little bit more? Is it something that uh, you're seeing, again, this may be, falls out of your area because it's software development. But I'm just wondering if you're, what kind of success you're seeing with it. Are you seeing they're delivering capabilities every three months, every month, and the money from the acquisition side, they're able to keep that process moving to, oh, we have a new requirements or a new 
requests from the users, now we can sh be more agile and flexible. The number one kind of benefit is that they're just able to adopt these modern software approaches, right? So they're able to shift from, hey, software development to, oh, hey, let's just push push this uh, maintenance patch to, oh, hey, look, more we've gotten another iterative requirement. Let's bake that in. And, and you don't need to worry about budgeting for those different colors of money. So that has been very helpful. But yeah, I mean, we're going to have to change everything from requirements, testing, acquisition, budgeting to account for it. So that this BA8 is, is really hitting the budgeting piece, but is very helpful. And, and we are looking at the other areas, broadly speaking, to see where we can make ourselves, you know, enable that modern software approach, if you will. The other thing you mentioned is streamlining. Uh, there's one or two things you'd probably want to highlight about streamlining acquisition. We know the Army, for instance, has been working on a new contract writing system for quite a while. It's been challenging. I know that. I know that there's always a push for reforms around how to uh, get contracting out faster or how to use multiple work contracts. Or, but is there, is there something you, your office is really focused on around that streamlining? We're focused on tailoring, right, is what I would broadly say. And, and so that's program and program documentation, but also contracting. You know, Congress gave us a couple of pathways in the last several years, middle-tier of acquisition, software pathway. The Department of Defense has then instituted the adaptive acquisition framework, right, which is these six pathways. And the whole goal is that you tailor to the unique risks of your program and the needs of your program. I think we're, we're continuing to see some of our folks struggle with what tailoring really means and tailoring out some of those documentation requirements, review requirements, processes. So we really want to hit hard at, uh, under all of this flexibility that we've been given, what can we take out and how can we help our program offices and contracting offices, you know, feel comfortable accepting that risk and tailoring some of that stuff out when appropriate. So that's where we're going to focus. Margaret Boatner is Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army for Strategy and Acquisition Reform, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say and on. A, obviously, we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought well you know I'll take a look at it and see, see you know throw uh, send in my information, and lo and behold I I, I get hired, and um, I learn 
uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who who works in, in our mailroom and comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused uh has a has a good story like it can just turn a day around for you and 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 you think of i i you know so often when you'll walk away i'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out and come on you know like look at look at terrell like he he, he faces everything with optimism and 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 i've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the united states and globally you see people who have had everything stacked against them you know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and uh, I mean, we work hard and you know, we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day. But uh, man, you see, it, it, and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Yeah. Everyone is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be. Uh, it's not just school age. It's it's, uh, you know, we say nine to ninety nine or uh, year old uh, folks. 
that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to to create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.